Welcome to An Actor Despairs. I'm your host, Ryan Perez. Today on An Actor Despairs, we have the nuanced, the powerful, and the man with the best voice in the world, Harry Lennox. You know Harry Lennox from projects like Man of Steel, Batman v Superman, The Blacklist, and The Matrix Trilogy. Here's our conversation. Harry, what's up, brother? Ryan, a lot is up, but it's uh, great to see you. It's great to see you, man. When I think of excellent actors and just all-around great men, you're one of the first humans that comes to mind, and you've just been such an incredible person to me, and just you have such power and nuance, and you're just such a dedicated performer, and I just have the most respect for you, and it's such an honor to call you a friend, and I really appreciate you being here, man. Thank you. Well, that's uh, that's high praise, and oh, it's, it's a lot coming from you, bro. I appreciate that. Yeah, man. You know, I, I think we've entered an interesting time where this business used to mandate talent. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, and now that's kind of the exception more than the rule, and you're just such an incredible actor, and it's been such an honor watching you work over the last 30 years, and I mean, I'm 29, but I... The first thing I ever did was commander in chief as a background as a skateboarder. So you know, I've known you since I was like oh, wow. twelve before I knew you. So, okay. but before we dig into work, let's start from the beginning, man. Where well, you grew up in Chicago, right? I did. I grew up uh, on the south side of Chicago. I still consider that home. Uh, a place called South Shore, a pretty tough neighborhood. Uh, oh wow! Yeah, very a neighborhood that was very much in flux. The um, there were a lot of at the first time about a bunch of Jim Germans who built a lot of the architecture, mm-hmm. and then there are a number of uh, German Jews or Polish Jews who lived there, people like Mandy Patinkin, um, even my friend uh, and Andy uh, White. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are people, you know, when I, uh, shoe stores, the dentist, all of these were Jewish establishments, and over the years, uh, in the 70s, it began to become entirely black and then, to some extent, Latino. And so we were in flux. There were a bunch of immigrants coming from the South. I wouldn't say immigrants, but, but transplants from yeah. the South, uh, uh, places like Alabama and Mississippi. And so we got there pretty early, uh, like in 66, maybe when I was about two years old. But I remember growing up, you know, there, and I remember seeing all of those changes and being right down the street from people like Muhammad Ali, who wow. uh, who lived in South Shore for a little while. Um the shy lights were there, you know, like yeah. we had uh, the staple singer. There was a bunch of Chicago people. Soul Train started in Chicago on the south side yeah. in somebody's basement or something, their living room. Yeah. Don Cornelius. So uh, it was a very active, robust time. This is the age of black power. Yeah. This is the age of uh, Operation Push. Um, Dr. King, I remember uh, not the event, but I remember my mother's reaction to it when I was about three and a half. Wow. Walking down the street, and she stopped. You know, she had on a veil, and I remember her stopping and crying, and uh, me not knowing precisely what what it was about. Yeah. Um. And so, you know, I mean, it's just rich with with uh, memory. Yeah. And I enjoyed, uh, and I, I'm proud of being from the South Side. Of That's Chicago. amazing. And yeah. did it have a lot of culture? Did you feel like like living in that neighborhood with that kind of diversity? Absolutely. Like there was, you know, we had professional singers that lived in the neighborhood. Uh, like I said, the shy lights were from there. A couple of the guys from the, for, uh, from the Dells, 
you know, that's a great 60s vocal group called the Dells. Of course, my neighbor across the street was uh, Cleavon Eaton, who was a great bass player for Ramsey Lewis and other people. Wow. So, so th- it was dense with talent. Clay, yeah. you know, Reverend Clay Evans uh, was at uh, Trinity Church uh, or something. I can't remember the name of the church, but he was there. Great. Gospels, right? One of the greatest influences on Aretha Franklin. So it was, you know, this was a place that was just uh, bubbling with talent and culture and, and, and theater and, and music festivals and all kinds of stuff. It was, it was great. And you feel like you developed an affinity to that pretty early as a kid? Like you felt the arts as something that was igniting you or pulling you? Not Well, you know, it's interesting because, Ryan, it gets into a thing that I'm very interested in now, which I'm referring to as theological aesthetics. Okay. Um, Talk to me about that. Not my uh, not my concept, but theological aesthetics goes back to, you know, pretty long time, people like Bethius and so forth, even Aristotle. Uh, but it is how we represent God or spiritual, you know, ideals mm-hmm. through, through the arts. And how, in point of fact, the arts were originally almost created to serve religious or yeah. spiritual principles. That's the aesthetics part. Aesthetics basically means perception through the senses, uh, your ability to see and, and hear and feel, you know, your senses being at their highest point. Mm-hmm. And at that end of point, in, in a way, is the only thing that is worthy of praise of God. Yeah seeking to gain some sort of an ideation that is some things can't be expressed in words yeah but so but you might be able to express it in a gesture this is the 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 you know this is the great uh beauty and great acting uh, particularly in film you know film motion pictures these these images that are created by gesture position uh camera work lighting makeup all of these things that go into trying to define in one moment, yeah, the perfect expression, and so this is a uh, this is my original way into acting mm-hmm. and the arts in general was I was deeply interested in God. Um, Were your parents spiritual? My father died before I was two. Sorry. Uh, so I don't, well, yeah, yeah you know. Um, so your mom really? My mom raised me. I have no real memory of my father. So it's it's like you know I don't. I wish I'd met him. <laughs> but I don't have any. Um, Did I read he, he, he was a machinist? Was yes, that, yeah. That's right. yeah, yeah, machinist and a and a and an amateur singer from New oh, Orleans. Yeah. Did I from uh, Laplace, Louisiana? So Creole, Creole, yeah. nice, yeah, pretty close to New Orleans, about forty miles. So, but he uh, he wanted to be a singer, and my mother was always singing, you know, in the house and so forth. Um, Frequently off, off the room, <laughs> out of pitch. G- gospel, gospel, popular music, country and western. Wow. She loves songs. She must have known thousands of songs. Yeah. And uh, over the years, as I started to pick up piano and stuff, she would know the tune, and so I got better because she always knew the words to the song. She could sing it. That's and, amazing. And she knew so many songs, and uh, and so it was always music. Hap- there was always music happening there. My older brother. Larry, now deceased, uh, was a could have been a great music producer, and he taught me how to listen to music. You know, wow. yeah, that ear, yeah, yeah, yeah. He I wish me. I had it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
but more in the kind of production way, not in the creation of right. the music. The semantics of, of notes and exactly. timing. Right. Or, or, yeah. or, or, or instrumentation. Right. And uh, uh, degrees of amplification. What, what was – he taught me how really to – as a producer yeah. of music, what to listen for. And then uh, studying in my Catholic grade school, um, I was in the band – I did a lot of plays, you know, whenever there was a play or some sort of presentation, I would do it. And I remember I always had this uh, ability to remember the lines, like the, the lines. I knew everybody's lines Wow! after like hearing it a couple of times, just because it just was like glue that I had. And so if somebody forgot a line, if they got nervous or just forgot the line, I would I would chime in. Yeah. And I remember that happened one time I was in about fourth grade and the nun said, you know, Harry, you've, uh, you've got quite a memory. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And it was interesting. You know, I could, uh, I was always good at spelling and things. I just, things that I could picture. I could, yeah. I could, uh, I could remember. And so that was like a word, for example, I could always remember words. And so I loved that, but my original fascination was with God and, in particular, the stories of, of, uh, of the apostles and how they walked in this power where they could expel demons and things of this nature. That was very interesting to me. Like we, we weren't analytical about it at all. We accepted that there were things like, you know, ghosts. We yeah. would, you know, turn off the light sometimes and pray in front of a mirror, wow. you know, uh, Bloody Mary and, and thinking that, you know, that you would see the Virgin Mary. I remember doing that as a kid too. All of these yeah. things. I, yeah. I believed it. Yeah, you know? totally. Yeah. Never saw it. Yeah, me. I, <laughs> I wish. <laughs> was, yeah. I don't know what the hell I would have done. <laughs> but, you know, but, uh, but I remember that. And I remember, um, at one point in eighth grade, I played Thomas Edison in this first ever kind of, you know, Star vehicle, as it wow. were, in elementary school. No way. Yeah, and other kids came up to see it from other schools where the nuns had affiliations. You know these things. They yeah. would bring their students up, and we would meet and mingle. And I played Thomas Edison. It was uh, me and another guy, my buddy Greg. Did they play Tesla? No, that would have been really interesting. Yeah, that would have been. <laughs> no, this is this was a kind of glorification of Thomas Edison, Got it. Know, where he was yeah. the genius. Yeah, you know, we were in eighth grade. Got we, it. Yeah, we, we don't want before the nuance. true story came. No, we don't want any new odds to the eighth grade. <laughs> so uh, it was called the Electric Sunshine Man. Wow! And I remember uh, some white kid, some white Catholic who was up there to see it said, "You remind me of Clifton Davis, um, who was on a show at that time, and who you know had." Great success in yeah. places like Broadway. He was on a show called uh, That's My Mama Yeah, at the time. But he had written, you know, some music and he had uh, done movies and Broadway. Great guy. Good. Still a friend. Still a friend. But that said, um, I still wasn't interested in acting yet. Interesting. So I went to a high school seminary uh, called Quigley, Archbishop Quigley Preparatory Seminary and uh, had every intention of becoming a priest and uh, was going to do that, but was playing baseball like my freshman year. Wasn't terribly good at it or trying to run cross country and all these other athletics. But I was, you know, not exceptional at that. Yeah. And so one one spring, they were doing a musical. They had done one the year before, but I wasn't interested in it. But I saw these pretty girls that were, you know, coming to the to the school, an all boy high school seminary. 
And so I went in and auditioned and I got a part. No way. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Yeah. But it was just, for me, it was something to do. You yeah, know? totally. Yeah. For the girls. <laughs> that's right. That's right. As always. Yeah. And that's amazing. And yeah. so then did you start feeling more gravity towards acting at that point? Or did it kind of just inadvertently switch from going the priest route to the acting route? Well, I, where, know, where did the switch happen? Was I, there a moment? I think it, it happened just being involved uh, with the musical that we did. It was uh, Guys and Dolls. Oh, yeah. And I just remember it was a heck of a story. Uh, the characters were very interesting. There were all these gamblers and hoodlums yeah. and all this stuff. A bunch of pretty girls, you know, playing the Kit Kat girls. Yeah. Uh, and the music, the way it was constructed and the lyrics and the whole show, how they put it on, uh, how we put it on. I was, I was deeply intrigued by it. And then the director of that play, Father Robert Bridge, took me that summer to see a professional production of Fiorello, a, a musical about Fiorello LaGuardia. And I was, I was hooked. I, I, I uh, Hmm. Something opened up for me, a, a, a world of possibility. Was that a divine cathartic experience, so to speak, or just kind of your first, that moment where it all... Hmm. A divine cathartic experience. That's a good way of putting it. I, I like it. I think, you know, to some extent, um, it was a revelation. How yeah, about that? I love that. It was a revelation. Stronger word. I think in the sense that... Um, the way they had these turnstile, these turntable stage so that, you know, the disc on the floor would turn and there would be a whole new set. Yeah. Or somebody would walk from one thing and they would change right in front of you. I was amazed. And the colors all sort of were coordinated in some way. All these pastels and these beautiful people who could sing. Yeah. And who could embody these. It was like, a, it was, I, I'd never seen anything like that. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'd seen great movies. I'd never seen theater like that. I'd only ever seen community type theater stuff. Yeah. I'd never seen professional theater. Wow. And, uh, and then so I got interested in like, you know, who Fiorello was. And then I got interested in, in, uh, in acting. Yeah. In actors and who was considered great and yeah. why. And so I would stay up late and I would watch all these movies with, Brando and Olivier and Gilgood and Guinness and Poitier. I would watch because everybody said those were the guys to watch. And then there was Pacino and De Niro and Hoffman and, and, uh, you know, there were these names of people who were considered lions of the, of the craft. Yeah. And then that just, you know, one thing, things led to other things. And I learned more and more. And I was, then I was in. I, I thought, well, I'm going to, I'm going to conquer this. And then you made the decision to go to Northwestern. Yes. And you, yeah. did you immediately decide to study acting or is that something that kind of revealed itself during your time there? No, I knew I was, I mean, I was going to study acting. There was no theater major. That's just, it wasn't offered. They call it speech or Got whatever uh, in a general field. And you can concentrate, you know, in the school of that field. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, I was, I was very intrigued by, we were given excellent instruction on the method and all of these things <clears throat> as distilled by a certain Alvina Kraus, who was my teacher's teacher and who had trained uh, very many excellent actors. Uh, I don't want to go into all of them, but yeah. they're but excellent. And, um, but I was always interested in other things. So for example, political science, history, yeah. uh, sociology, 
uh, African American studies, yeah. um, language. You know, I was interested in all of those and was at Northwestern. I was the head of the Black Student Union uh, for a time and was working in professional theater as well. I started work getting jobs in professional theater uh, around my sophomore year. And so it was, uh, you know, I was always juggling many things. I had wow. a work study <laughs> job, but, uh, you know, as, as a librarian, but uh, I was always doing multiple things. And studying multiple things. Wow. But I studied very intensely and intensively uh, acting. And so was the goal to, to, to do it on the theater? You know, that was your intention to, to become the great theater actor in Chicago? Like, did you have an you know, because now the content bubble, it's like, oh, I want to get on a Netflix show. What was your idea of success at that moment before the business is where it is today, you know? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I don't want to... I don't want to give myself that kind of uh, purity yeah. uh, or, or puritanism in a way. Uh, I was aware at the time that people considered theater acting as high as a higher craft yeah. just because of the technical requirements, your ability to, you know, emote and project and all of these things uh, repeatedly yeah. eight times a week, Yeah, <laughs> you know, on, on demand. Yeah. In front of people, but the, but I was also aware that I wanted the uh, enduring quality of film to really be where, you know, I was going to commit most of my attention and energy. And I think anymore, um, there's a great blurring of, on purpose, intentional, I don't think it says anything bad about either form of acting in film or uh, or on screen or on stage, I think that they're increasingly blended. And I think the technical demands required of actors is no longer what it was. Yeah. Uh, you can whisper on stage in Broadway now yeah. and be heard perfectly well. Yeah. I, and why not? Why yeah. not take advantage of that? Totally. Since we could do it, we could be done realistically. And, it, and that is perhaps uh, more uh, true to the tale that is being told. Yeah. But there's something that I've learned to really appreciate in presentational acting. You know? I completely agree. Even something like Kabuki. Yeah. Um, Japanese theater. Amazing, Yay. amazing external. Yeah. Just, you know, that stuff we were talking about earlier, these gestures, this ideation, this arriving of a, of a moment that my dear friend Julie Taymor refers to as an ideograph. Yeah. Where this one moment, the cat that encapsulates the entire story. And do you feel like before Northwestern or during your time in Northwestern, you found your voice like as a, as a, as a man, as an actor? Because that's something that I think actors really struggle with. You know, it took me a long time. You know, I'm, I'm 29. Man, I, I don't think I found my voice till I was like 27. You know, like who I was, where I placed myself. Did you, did you have an idea at that time or did it kind of reveal itself towards you in other ways? Hmm. That's a very good question. Um, I think I was fairly sure of myself. I was pretty self-possessed, but I think uh, uh, the kid that I, you know, that kid, if I could talk to him today, I would have all kinds of advice or of course, and, and, and correction. And that uh, I was wrong a lot. I was wrong a lot, but I was kind of bullheaded. I, I felt sure of myself. I yeah. thought that I had a voice and I, I uh, maybe I did. Yeah. Maybe I did. I believe you did. Yeah. 
You strike me as someone who would have that. And at Northwestern, then, did you develop relationships with the theater community there? Like, was the Goodman going strong at that? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And so was the goal to stay in Chicago, or did you pivot to New York shortly after graduation? Well, I uh, stayed in Chicago for years. You did? Like, I stayed there until I was, I want to say, 25. Okay. And then um, I graduated. So, uh, you know, I was working while I was in school, so I, I spent... I would say a good seven years in the Chicago theater scene. Yeah. Um, and I, and I've always returned to it from time to time. Was, was Steppenwolf becoming a thing at that time or was it not quite a thing? Yet? Oh yeah. Steppenwolf was becoming a thing like when I was in high school. So like the early, let's just say, you know, the early eighties. Wow. Malkovich and, uh, and Sinise and all of those guys yeah. were, uh, were getting reputations as excellent actors and they were getting reputation as an excellent company. Um, they did bomb and Gilead or something and that yeah. sort of put them on the map. Um, New York times or something wrote about them. Um, and they were a company, they were an ensemble, whereas the Goodman was just a, a theater. Yeah. Um, they had an artistic director and so forth, but they weren't a company, uh, an ensemble. Yeah. But my most of my uh, I've worked with both companies, but most of my work I was an artistic associate at the Goodman Theater uh, for many years. But I've directed at Steppenwolf and been in shows there and so forth. And you're today you didn't you direct a play recently? I did. I yeah. directed a play in New York and in Chicago. Um, but here in New York, we directed it. I directed at the Billy Holiday Theater. It's called A Small Oak Tree. Yeah, runs red. And uh, it's an ingenious play by Lakeithia Delco, who was an actress, hmm. went to the new school, and uh, but wrote this play. And it won a contest at the Congo Square Theater Company, where it was first produced uh, under my direction and uh, produced by them, and did great. Like, yeah. you know, got all kinds of uh, praise. Very difficult subject about yeah. the lynching of Mary and Hayes Turner in 1918. In, in, uh, Valdosta, Georgia. <clears throat> and she was pregnant. She was eight, eight months or something pregnant. Yeah. Time. And, uh, they, you know, did horrible things to the people. But, um, the way that it was told, the way that Lakeithia poeticized it mm-hmm. was so beautiful in a way. And, uh, it was a real thrill. To take it, take this challenge of a play and to turn it into a drama by the use of poetry to abstract it. Yeah. So that people could view this extremely painful sequence of events. Uh, but the way that she told it from the point of view of a kind of an abyss, a, a purgatory place where the figures who go back to the moments that, that they are remembering, mm-hmm. they reenact them and it's, but she told it in such a haunting way, and I thought to myself, you know, what what uh, what a gift. Yeah. In fact, the descendants of Mary and Hayes Turner came to see it here in Brooklyn at wow. the Billy Holiday Theater, and uh, took pictures with us. Wow. And uh, but you know, there's there was it was like a haunting. It was like uh, the spirits of Mary and Hayes Turner were there in some sense. You know, the young lady who played it here. Uh, she, she, uh, Ky- Kyla, uh, she would blank out in the most, uh, you know, the most critical moment of the play. Like that is to say, 
when she would come off stage, she would have no memory yeah. of having performed it. Yeah. You couldn't, <laughs> you couldn't tell. Yeah. But I believe that she was being protected yeah. by the spirit that inhabits, I think, every theater, right? Every yeah. movie set lot. You know, working at Chinichita, for example, the spirits of Bertolucci is there somewhere. Yeah. De Sica is there. You know, Fellini, they, those spirits are forever. They inhabit. And I, and I think that happens in the theater as well. We leave a piece of ourselves in the floorboard, in the wings, in the pulleys, in the weights. And yeah. the, you know, I, I think that, uh, I've bled on stage. You bled on stage. Yeah. You mean that? That's for real. That's, that's, uh, material stuff to me. I, I'm, I'm interested because speaking of that, when, when I think of black excellence and, and black talent, you're, I mean, man, you're um, in such an amazing performer. And there's a moment in a, one of your earlier films, The Five Heartbeats, uh, <laughs> which is interesting, but it, it's relevant to what we're talking about, where I think the A&R guy brings the uh, cover for your album, and you guys are eliminated. And he talks about how he did that so you guys could cross over for a white audience. And is that something you feel like you've had to outmaneuver in your career semantically, like the way you've made decisions? Like, is that something in your early days still to today? Is that something that, that happens? Yes, I think so. I mean, I, uh, there's a phrase that Roger Wilkins uses, which he calls a black tax. He says, uh, no matter how accomplished you may be or how high you get, how rich you get, how powerful, uh, there's for every black person, there's a tax that is levied yeah. against them at some point where they will only be able to go so far because the, the payment is yeah. so heavy that you wind up <laughs> sacrificing something. Yeah. Uh, to get there. And I think that that is true. Um, I don't know what would have happened, for example, if, uh, if I were white, yeah. you know, would I even be an actor? Maybe. And if so, what would my reception be? Would I have been an A-list, you know, star by this point or in all of these things? But at the end of it, you can only really do what the opportunity allows you to. And I have taken, uh, and, and I think that that's where frequently yeah. the most extraordinary progress and achievement occurs is in limit, is in limitation. Uh, the beauty achieved by writing a haiku, for example, and these, you know, however many lines and seven, what is it, 17, whatever it is. Yeah, 575. But, uh, you know, in a racial way, in a cultural way, uh, (laughs) it uh, would be metaphysical, but it is entirely physical, at least in the United States and many other places. Uh, We have been severely limited and uh, opposed and hampered disabled uh, consciously, subconsciously, on every level. And yet, we have contributed the only uniquely American art forms to date, really. It's all influenced by us. You know, blues, rock and roll, roll, gospel, um, dance, literature. Uh, some of the, the, the black writers are superior 
to almost any other group of right. If you just took the Harlem Renaissance alone and extrapolated from yeah. that to put into language, uh, the experiences that, uh, that Martin Luther King was able to do, the homiletics of, of, uh, Adam Clayton Powell and any number of the, the influence of that yeah. rhetoric, rhetoric yeah. has spanned the globe over at this point. Yeah. Everybody's now always, when they run for office, try to, you know, use some sort of black inflection and it, uh, you know, frequently yeah. rings hollow. Yeah. Uh, Hillary, uh, famously. <laughs> Barack Obama, for that matter. Yeah. Barack Obama does, doesn't talk like that. Yeah. Uh, that's an affectation, but it has influenced, that is, black people's language mm-hmm. as politicians, as religious leaders, uh, the homiletics, the hermeneutics, all of those things, the, the exegesis, that, uh, that Howard Thurman, uh, could write, you know, an amazing scholar and, uh, theologian. So in those fields of endeavor, which are aesthetics and theological, mm-hmm. political, cultural, uh, we have excelled and have defined America. And this experience of being here on this, in this brave new world. Yeah. And so I, so I, I have not seen these uh, obstacles as anything other than an opportunity. Yeah. And rather than complain about it or remain stymied by it, it has always been my method to go and do my own. And that's so interesting because speaking of art and commerce, and that goes back to that film. After that film, I imagine you, you had a little bit of freedom to kind of choose what you wanted to do next or. Which one? The fire? The, yeah. After, I mean, that was pretty successful. No. It no, was? No, it flopped. It, I love that movie. It was such a part of my childhood. You were the one. <laughs> you and Leon, man. I just met with Leon the other day. Yeah. yeah. Leon's cool. Oh, Leon's great, man. Leon's cool. Yeah. But, uh, no, it didn't do well at the box office, but, uh, you know, look, it is. But it's such a historical film, you know. It I is. Yeah. Like now. Yeah. Yeah. People saw it after. Yeah, it and, had that afterlife. Right. And now it's the most popular black movie ever made. Yeah. You know. And then Clockers happened not long after that, right? Yeah, but Clockers, they cut my they cut my little scene out of that. I had a little thing with John Turturro and Harvey Keitel, uh, but they cut it. I think I, you see me walking somewhere. But um, but you developed your relationship with Spike there. Sort of, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that's where I met him, more or less. And then having those kind of film credits under your belt at that point, did you feel more attracted to doing more films, or at that point, did you were you in L.A.? Where, where did you go? Well, after the Five Heartbeats, interestingly, um, I got an immediate job working uh, and on a Perry Mason episode with with the great Raymond Burr and Barbara wow. Hale and these people, and uh, met people like uh, Robert Culp was on that episode, and and um, it was really cool. Kevin Teig. Teague was on it, and um, I played the opposing attorney, the attorney general of the assistant DA. Yeah. And I went against Perry Mason, of course, got my hat handed to me. <laughs> and then uh, I stuck around L.A. to see if I could book anything. I couldn't yeah. stick. Because, you know, heartbeats hadn't come out yet. Yeah. Nobody, nobody right, knew. yeah. Uh, and it wouldn't have done, it didn't do well anyway. But I went back and I taught school some more. In Interesting. Yeah. And how was that experience, going back and doing that? It was great. You loved it. Loved it. You did. Yeah. I feel like it's such an enriching thing because I've recently started doing that. And yeah. it it really does enlighten something in you just to, 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 to come back and, and to kind of 
not that I have any credits or have been deputized, but to kind of give back in that way that you've learned from the field and then and see it enlightened in young people. That's and, right. Yeah. And so you went back to Chicago and did you keep doing theater? Yes. So, you know, when I first got out for those several years working in theater, I was uh, non-union for yeah. for several years, you know, for a few of those years on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> and um, that was before the merger and it is what it is. Oh, yeah. 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 But uh, I was doing plays for like 50 bucks a week. So to supplement my income, I taught school on a, on a substitute basis as a substitute teacher. And so when I booked the heartbeats, that took me to L.A. So uh, I was just doing that. And then I came back and did it some more. Yeah. And um, did some more plays. I did uh, The Great Gatsby, for example, um, one of my favorite plays. I played Malcolm X in a play called The Meeting, which uh, gained a lot of notoriety. We took, uh, we actually took that to around on a tour around the country. Performed it. Uh, I played Malcolm X in the Sky, played Dr. King, and we actually performed it in front of Coretta Scott King, and she loved it. Wow. And talked to us afterward. And, you know, we met so many people doing this. Um, and I became very interested in, in Malcolm X, and I became very interested in the Nation of Islam. I'd grown up around uh, them all my life. We played in, you know, this, on the same streets yeah. together. And so that sort of reignited my fascination uh, with with the Nation of Islam and how they had accomplished so much without any help or assistance from the government, yeah. without involving them. They didn't even vote. Uh, but they had shops and schools, and they were in school all year long, and they were always neat and respectful yeah. and clean and and uh, courteous. And I, and I was just... Uh, really fascinated with who this man was and then who Elijah Muhammad was who created it. How did this man with a third grade education? So, you know, this is what all of these things were going on in Chicago. I'm teaching school. Uh, I'm doing plays. I'm doing community work. Yeah. I'm You're campaigning. I'm, you know, for people, uh, you know, I'm doing all sorts of uh, things because I was never just satisfied. Yeah. Doing acting or pursuing it, and you can't be. I think. I think that's you got to have other things in your life because if that's the only thing that gives you value, there's so much of that you can't control, you know. Right. And there are other things you can control. And so after all, after those experiences, you started doing a lot of episodic work, right? I did. Yeah. Yeah. yeah as a matter of fact. Yeah. And and how do you? You're so incredible in those shows, and those those that you know they're written in such a way you know <laughs> yeah. procedurals how do you feel like you're able to bring authenticity to those characters you know because it's the dialogue the vernacular it's very intri- right. you know yeah. i'm not i don't i'm not belittling it i get it and i understand no, yeah. people love those shows yes, you they know do. they're law and orders blacklist those are some of the most successful shows in the world and syndication alone you know yeah. Yeah. but how do you how do you bring truth to that well this is again this is the the thing about obstacle uh, and then trying to create within a limited space magic. How do you take, <laughs> you know, the head of a pen yeah. and, and design a ballet for it? And so that's the challenge. It's not always easy, but I, I have learned that listening, really listening, um, is the key. 
because if you really listen to all this procedural expositional crap that yeah. is normally, you know, this sort of bland pablum yeah. that uh, network television is allowed to do, although, you know, the blacklist, I think, is unique. It, it tells interesting stories, at least. Um, and, you know, the, the language of Reddington and all of that stuff is kind of heightened stuff. It's very interesting to listen to. Yeah. Um, using it as rhetoric, I think it excels... Uh, in in a form or in a position where a lot of other things don't. Yeah. So I'm lucky. And the situations that I've been in on those shows have always given me an opportunity to listen and to distill information. And in looking at the work of a lot of actors that I've worked with or even directed mm-hmm. or done classes with, um, the Meisner people taught me the value of listening. Yeah. And then act, looking at actors like Anthony Hopkins, he listens so well. He listens so well. And so I, I, um, I try to do that. I actually try to, to find what the story is and what people are saying to me. How do yeah. we, so is my character on the, on the blacklist, uh, you know, I'm always listening to all this data. Yeah. You know, these people are here at this point. We have to be here at, uh, you know, Reddington's over here. And so I have to sort of sift through that, mm-hmm. uh, for the audience as a kind of representative of them. Yeah. Because they're hearing it for the first time like me. And then through the processing of it, uh, you know, to make it clear what is happening and what needs to happen next. Yeah. So that, that to me has given me an opportunity. I think, you know, maybe 15 years ago, if I were doing it, would have, this part would have driven me crazy. I'm sure. But, uh, and, and, um, I, I, I know, but I think I learned that in the last 15 years is to listen. Yeah. And then operating in those, you've gone from, you know, doing a lot of episodic stuff to, some of the biggest films of all time, you know, the, the matrix in, in the nineties and the early two thousands, those movies, you know, now they're everywhere, but right. they, that there's big budget movies. They were a lot riskier then. what was it like going to live in that world? You know, of, of the Wachowskis and $150 million set. Did, did you enjoy that experience? Yes. I mean, it was, uh, <clears throat> we were sort of in our own world. We were in a bubble for a little while there, um, in Australia, even in Alameda where we started, uh, the matrix two and three, uh, you know, they had done the first one, I think, in uh, Australia as well. Yeah. Uh, Fishburne and, and uh, Keanu and all those guys. But uh, it was great. You know, they had all the toys. Yeah. Um, Every gadget. Yeah. There's sort of more luxury. There's more luxury of time. They're not rushing anything per se. You know, money isn't an object. They have all the... You know, the clearances and licenses to permits to shoot wherever the hell they want <laughs> yeah. to. Money's they could, not a problem. Right. They could build, <laughs> they could build their own freeway yeah. and all these. We built uh, our own freeway on the Matrix, too. You know, when they do that car chase. Oh, and the motorcycles. Uh, yeah. They built a, a, a mile of freeway. Wow. <laughs> Must be nice. <laughs> it was pretty, yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, that's kind of something. Yeah. Um, it was like a city, you know. We were at Fox Studios in Australia, and I, I befriended a, a lot of Australians, but... We were there for months and months and months at a time. I yeah. mean, that whole thing took a year and a half or something to shoot. Because you shot both back to back, right? Yeah, yeah, and the video game and all of that. So when you have that kind of uh, access, yeah. almost, it's very relaxing. And so I really, you know, 
So it's like acting with your pals. Yeah. If you're that hot, you know, if you're in that rarefied air where yeah. you're doing, you're acting with uh, Henry Cavill and Zack Snyder and Russell Horns, you know, I mean, yeah. Russell Crowe and all these other uh, A-listers. You were the first person cast in Man of Steel. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the story I tell. I think I remember. And I you, think that's true. You told yeah. me the story of when he did his screen test. Yeah. And you, went, you were in the Palisades and you're like, holy <laughs> shit, <it's> Superman. <laughs> I love that's that right. story. Yeah, uh, man. Santa Monica Mountains. And, uh, and, and operating in those uh, worlds where, where it's spectacle driven and, and a lot of the stuff comes in after. How do you yeah. keep the truth on set when you got, you know, five different things that are going to be flying at you in post? It's so make believe anyway. Like yeah. the whole proposition of acting, particularly in those big tent, you know, superhero things, you just, you know, it's like going back in time playing cowboys and Indians. Yeah. You just, you, you imagine. I mean, we do that all the time in the theater. Yeah. You know, there's stories about, uh, uh, Eleanor Duza, you know, looking, uh, on stage describing a wave that she saw or whatever. And she, and the people in the audience were said to have seen the way they could see in her that she's looking at that wave. So we use our imagination all the time in the theater and, and it's no different in, in this. They tell you that, well, here's a, big spider looking machine that's coming to eat you. <laughs> You're like, Oh, and, uh, you, you imagine just make believe. Yeah. And then at that point, you know, in your career and having those films under your belt, when did, when did, cause we're going to talk about revival, when the idea of creating your own content start to come, you started a production company about 10 years ago, right? Or maybe longer. Well, I think officially, officially, I think in 2013, but, uh, I had already been doing stuff. You know, I'd always, always produced plays and paid for them and so forth from high school. Uh, we were put on shows like talent shows and that. And then in college, I was the head of the black theater, uh, league and, uh, would direct things. And then, then, you know, as soon as I graduated, uh, right around the time I was playing Malcolm X, uh, I put together a theater company. Wow. Um, it's called Legacy Theater Company. So I've always been producing content, but yeah. that, that said, doing it in an electronic form, that yeah. is a film, uh, I didn't start doing that until like 2010. And I wish I'd started earlier, but the reason I didn't do it earlier is because it was so expensive. Yeah. And so the technology finally caught up where, oh man, I could actually buy a camera. It'd be cheaper than renting a camera, totally. in fact. And, you know, and, and all of these things and we can do our own movie. Yeah. But that, you know, I would always hope to raise money from other people, but it kept not coming. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, well, I could keep waiting or I could, uh, just take some, some risks. Yeah. And I took a bunch of risks, took a lot of loans and, uh, put together at this point three movies. So talk to me, what, what was the first film you did? It's called Mr. Sophistication. Okay. Now it's going to be called Troubled Waters. We just uh, recently got the licensing uh, together. Uh, How did the script come to you? The script was came to me. I had met a guy named Danny Green on a uh, movie, Stomp the Yard. And uh, he had always, I guess, wanted to work with me. But then he saw me, he saw me in a situation where I uh, had some words with a producer who had wasted my entire day, had me on set for a day. Yeah. <clears throat> and I had not been used. And I was supposed to be off the next day. And as such, I booked another job. Yeah. 
uh, but he was, you know, got back to me that uh, they were going to need me the next day because they weren't going to get to my scene that day. And that's not acceptable to me. So yeah. I had Danny bring the producer to me, the producer of note. And I told him that that was, uh, you know, that I would do his stupid movie, but he would have to work around my schedule for the next day. And he better not waste my damn time anymore yeah. by bringing me to set and not using me <laughs> because then I would cause trouble for him. Yeah. I don't, I, that's not, I'm Harry Lennox yeah. at this point. Uh, and at any point, you can't waste my time like that. I mean, Zack Snyder doesn't call me to set and not use me. Yeah. So either learn how to run your production better yeah. or make allowances yeah. for other work I do because I'm not just doing your stupid movie. Yeah, I got commitments. Right. Yeah. So that prompted these, this writer to write Mr. Sophistication. He had sort of had this idea about a comedian and use of it, but there was something in that exchange where he saw part of Harry Lennox uh, that he had not seen because I'm usually playing, you know, yeah. Affable, yeah, yeah. button down type of guy. Yeah. But I'm from the South side of Chicago. Oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite thing to me with you is, oh man, you're such a badass dude. <laughs> and, uh, I got to be as badass as you, man. I got to get some Lennox. <laughs> You're, you're, you're getting there. Man. I'm trying, man. You know, yeah. I quit drinking, so I do CrossFit now. So that's, <laughs> that's, right. that's a good but start. If I get one fourth your way. But so then he wrote you that film. Yes. And uh, supposedly he had the money in place. It was going to be shot in Europe. And there was all this money that was supposedly there. And it never showed up. Yeah. Uh, I was like, man, let's, you know, what the hell? Let's do it ourselves. Yeah, let's do it ourselves. And was that a good experience? Like your first film on your own or was it kind of, do you feel like you were running with your head cut off and you figured it out and that was your film school? Yes. Yeah. The latter. Yeah. It was a good experience. It was yeah. a good experience too. Yeah. I learned a lot. Yeah. Uh, I learned how difficult and challenging it is to make a movie, uh, how flexible you have to be, how you have to improv, you know, a lot. That is to say, Think on your feet. Yeah. Because unexpected things like, you know, we got our, our truck stolen. Uh, we had to shoot like the next day and it had, uh, all the wardrobe and the makeup and the, uh, no. yeah, some equipment, uh, some shooting equipment and, but it was insured. Yeah. And so we scrambled it together and we were shooting on Monday. Wow. You know, um, there were times where there weren't enough or any toilets. Yeah. And that hadn't been accounted for. And, you know, we shut down production one time because we were filming in a place that was just filthy. Oh. We're like, we're not going to, you know, yeah. we're not going to do this to our crew. So I learned a lot and I learned uh, how valuable uh, every aspect of a film family. Yeah. Every, every. Such a well oiled machine. Yeah. You it know, it has to be. It has to be. And all the mechanics in place. So obviously yeah. that went well enough where you, you decided to keep going and do yeah. it. And so what was the next film? H4. It's, uh, in my view, uh, the first black Shakespeare film ever done. That is uh, Shakespeare play told from a, from the cultural perspective or even the historical perspective of black people. And so instead of England, it's Inglewood. Okay. And, um, but all the rest of it is Shakespeare. We do some gender bending a little bit, but that said, um, it's diverse, but it's from the black, it's a black story. Wow. And, um, so it's Henry the fourth part one and two. Uh, it had a premiere at the Chicago International Film Festival, as did uh, Troubled Waters, the, the movie about Ron Waters, a comedian 
who uh, has a second shot at a big career. Yeah. That's why I played in that. In that, in that. Um, and I was hooked. You know, I was hooked on production. I was addicted to it. Of course. Yeah. It's the best. Yeah. It, it is a drug, and it's so, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's nothing <laughs> like it. Method. Yeah. And right. and then I want to talk about Revival, because that one, I I met you in about 2013. I remember you were getting it together, and I'm so proud of you, man. And yeah. now here you are, but talk to me from the beginning. How did that come together? Well, it's interesting, you know. Um, and, but, and before moving on, yeah. the other two films, where can people check them out at? Right now, nowhere. Yeah. Um, I'm working right now on distribution of uh, the other two. There's mm-hmm. been, there have been offers on streaming and all of these stuff, but, uh, you know, we're working through details. Mm-hmm. Uh, but eventually you'll be able to see it, uh, I hope, on disc, um, on DVD, um, on my website, on, you know, any number of places. It should be available at some point. Okay, great. But, uh, everywhere. Yeah. But, um, and I don't think that they have a time, you know, a, a sell-by date. Yeah. I think that they're both relevant today and doesn't matter what yeah. time they're selling. That said, um, Revival came because there was a – I go to a church in, in L.A. called New Antioch Church of God in Christ. And my creative partner, one of them, is a certain Dr. Holly Carter. She's the one who used to ask me to help her direct shows over there. She's the uh, the head of the praise and worship department there. And she's a, a formidable producer in Hollywood. She had some shows on the air, produced a gospel movie called The Gospel, uh, which many years ago, about 10 years ago, did very well. And uh, she's got some shows on the air like Preachers of L.A. and some other things. But she's uh, a devoted Christian, and uh, I belonged to the church. I joined, and one Easter, one Christmas, they said, Harry, are we going to do an Easter play? And uh, they hadn't done anything in a while. And so I said, yeah, well, we'll do. Uh, and I couldn't think of anything. I mean, what are we going to do? Godspell? Yeah. You mean? That's not, you know, Jesus is a clown. <laughs> I don't think that would go over so great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then um, Jesus Christ Superstar is an opera yeah. and, uh, and is entirely secular. So that wouldn't go over great. That would never be approved, those two things. So, And there was nothing else to choose from. So I, I wrote something. And... Uh, and I wrote it for the saints, what we call the saints at the church, the people who were the members of the church. And they were great. And you couldn't get a seat. I think we did it twice. Uh, we could have run, done a run of that. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm sure it would have done very, very well. But I thought, you know, well, why don't we, we should shoot this. We should actually just get some cameras in here and then, you know, sell it at churches at Easter time. So. Yeah. But then that became, well, why don't we shoot it on the sound stage and, you know, just project different backgrounds on it and, and, uh, and that would be fun. And then, uh, that became, well, why don't we shoot it on location? <laughs> wow. And then it became, well, why don't we make it a hybrid where it's both on location and on the sound stage and against a green screen? Yeah. And so that's what it became. It was, it's a hybrid, uh, gospel musical. Gospel fantasy, really. I call it a, a, a gospel fantasia because that's what it is. It's a, it's rhapsodic. It has very many elements. It's sound and color, costume, spectacle, uh, dance ministry. Um, it's all of that. Yeah. Passion play. Um, so it's really unique. And I think the only thing of its kind, 
first of all, is a black Jesus, yeah. you know, uh, which, which is true, which, which is true. Yeah. hundred percent. But, but rarely, <laughs> rarely <laughs> depicted. depicted. <laughs> you get Jim Caviezel. Yeah. 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 You know, the white, and I like that movie. Yeah. I like, I like Passion of the Christ, you know, and I think that people should have a God that looks like representative of them. Yeah. Including us. Yeah. Because at least it's, it's closer to how he probably looked a and B. If you do not have a God that looks like you, then that means you're not associating yourself with, it. with that. And you are, in point of fact, saying that you're the opposite of that. Mm. And that becomes manifest problem. And so uh, that was sort of the undercurrent uh, of it. But the real current of it was just to praise God uh, in a new way by using the celebratory experience that is the black church that has sustained our people for our entire time here. Uh, and that never gets any credit. Yeah. It gets lampooned. It gets used as a kind of, you know, uh, to mock and to yeah. call out hypocrites of it and so forth. But why don't we use this amazing experience? Because we are the most spiritual people. We are the most, uh, self-identifying religious group of people in the country by far. And so that needs a representation on film and on stage and in every platform. And that's what it was. It's using the traditional black American culture, spiritual, socioeconomic, uh, religious, whatever culture, which all started from music the blues, jazz, rock and roll, that started from a religious experience and was developed into this unique form. And it is a way of knowing God. And I wanted to use it to open up a new world of possibilities in entertainment and aesthetics and spirituality because those things are deeply needed. And traditionally, they do very well. Yeah. And so that film, as you said, it is a hybrid. Logistically, did it kind of keep oscillating? Which, which, you know, the soundstage, the green screen, the as the as the production went on. Because at first, didn't you shot it at the the soundstage stuff first, right? Because I remember seeing that in 2013. Or what? You had you had a clip of something first, and then uh, you went back and finished it later, right? We were everywhere, yeah, uh, from the beginning. Yeah, we were in the theater, so I think we might have started it in in the stage. Uh, that is the Nate Holden Theater in LA. Okay. I think that's where we start. We were there for a solid two weeks. And then we, we, uh, because we, because of the deal. Yeah. And then we, and then we, uh, took off to do the location yeah. stuff. But it was always, you know, so the conceit of it, as it were, is that, uh, an actor coming to do a stage play, a passion play, while preparing to go on stage has this experience this virtual experience where he goes back into time and space yeah. and lives the actual life it's like the wizard of oz yeah. in that sense do you yeah. know what i mean 100%. the matrix yeah yeah there's some something happens yeah. that triggers a a binary event yeah they're they're related to each other but they're happening in different times and spaces but they're correlated do you see what i mean uh -huh. i mean that's what happens obviously in uh the Matrix. If you die in the Matrix, then you die in, yeah, in the real, real life. World. Yeah. Uh, 
if you believe in the matrix or if you believe in the real world, you can transfer that belief and the power of it, you know, into the matrix and so forth. So this is, um, uh, you know, not new, but it was, this is the first time it's been applied, uh, you know, to this. And you, and you have distribution for that film already. Correct? Yes. Yeah. I distribute, I put it out myself at Easter. Um, we were up against some pretty well-funded, uh, <laughs> movies, man. Yeah. You know, um, they have tens of millions of dollars to have it. So I what I learned, this is, this is my big takeaway for you, right? Uh, and for anybody listening is that as difficult as it is to produce a film, and it is, that's way easier than distributing it. Because that takes lots and lots of money. You have to put it in front of people all the time at every place. Yeah. On TV, on billboards, on buses, on, you know, on radio spots. You've got to get out there. And so by the time you finish paying for that, yeah. it's very difficult to get your money back. It can, it can cost more than the budget of the film. Correct. Which is why they do nothing but Marvel films now. Correct. Because they know they'll make that money back. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And would you say now in the 2019 world we live in, films like that, that, that have representation and things like that, would you say Hollywood's getting better and there's more room for that? Or would you say it's not in your experience, both as an actor and just both as a, as an objector? I think that, um, I don't know. I mean, to some extent, revival was intended to be a kind of proof or at least a, 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 a a hypothesis for, for, you know, what kind of reception these kinds of movies would get. I don't know yet. I think that, um, two things are true. One is the box office is only moderately important, if at all. It's really just a means of making the real money. Yeah. So in itself, it's really just PR. Um, 70% of profits are made after the box office, for example. So hence why a lot of people don't even bother with the box office. They go right to VOD, to VOD and they does extraordinarily well, many of these things. And I have that hope for revival. I think it may. But I do think that since I self-distributed it yeah. um, in conjunction with a group called Tricoast, uh, they uh, are strong internationally and uh, you know have some relationships with Sony Own Inter- Entertainment, which is where Revival is going to come out. We actually had some groups approach us about doing a second theatrical release, but it just you know they would get all the goodies from it. So I just wasn't yeah. rather than delay when I could actually make m- make some money. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you never know with this thing, you know things. Um, film is forever. Yeah, and it's and a I shot think, at immortality. That's what it, I think. It, it's, it is. Yeah. yeah, I think so. And. Yeah. Before we finish up, what's next for you, both as an actor and as a producer? Well, as an actor, I'm going to be going back into uh, the blacklist in about a month. Um, that'll be fun. Yeah. Season What's, seven. Season seven. How's yeah. that feel? <laughs> it real. That's the longest job I've ever had. Yeah. <laughs> Are you still uh, having fun? I mean, how do you yeah. keep that fresh, man? You yeah. know? Is it- I have a good time, yeah. man. Uh, I, I think that. You know, you're acting with a guy like Spader and some of our guest actors and even our regular actors. These are really good actors. Like, we get the best of, you know, the New York uh, talent pool yeah. and the L.A. talent pool and all that. We got to get you on there. I yeah, you know, I know. <laughs> yeah. They never tell me what's being cast. Yeah, we gotta I know. Get you up there. They, they, they keep changing the casting directors. I keep trying to get in front of them. Oh, it was Kate right? Geller. Then it was Christy Street. Then it was, you know. I can get this. I can get, yeah. the, I can get uh, your stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, let's talk offline. But yeah, yeah. But uh, <laughs> so that blacklist. And yeah. then what's next for your company? And moreover and more importantly, can you mention where people can stay in contact with with everything that's going to happen with your 
three films and yeah. and you. So all all of these things will be uh, on my website, harrylennox.com. H a r r y l e n n i x. Uh, when it becomes available, it'll all be there. I'm also at Harry Lennox at Twitter. I have an Instagram uh, thing too. Oh, nice! Yeah. Welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Adapt your dime, yeah. my man. Adapt your dime. <laughs> so uh, that'll all be there. Uh, we also have for the for revival. We have revivalthemovie.com. Okay. And it will have all of the information. Revivalthemovie.com. It has uh, the trailer. You can see that. You can see uh, all kinds of interviews and press on it. You know, it was received very well. Very, very well. Yeah, I'm and, so happy uh, for you. Yeah, I think it makes people happy. And I think the world needs it. I agree. You know, and um, and, and they'll have an opportunity soon to, to have it available to and for your company or for yeah. you, or any any plays or movies in the pipeline? We've got uh, right now a, just a cadre of things that we want to produce. So I've got probably a dozen scripts, some for television, some for limited series, uh, some for film. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm excited about all of them. I really am. I think they cover a, a broad spectrum of genres, but they... You know, are unique. Yeah. You know, kind of in the way that I guess um, us or uh, uh, Get Out. You mm-hmm. know, you, you're taking a known form. And, yeah. And uh, reconfiguring it for a new audience, and I think that that's what these things that I want to do do, although not in that genre. Yeah. But that said, uh, we have some things I was pitching last week with Holly, uh, my partner Steve Harris. Uh, and I am also pitching. So we're trying to get some things. I'm trying to use some other people's money now since I spent yeah. all mine. Yeah. I have less money now than when I started the show. <laughs> That's, the That's how it goes. I'm man. broke. Yeah. I'm broke. But, um, I do, you, think, do you feel like with know, these streaming yeah. platforms, it's made it easier to get stuff made or is it harder because the market's so saturated? I think it's easier. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think, um, you know, this is a whole new open, unknown, charter, uncharted territory. This it's the content stuff. bubble. Yeah. Right. So, you know, if you go with certain people, uh, platforms like uh, Netflix or yeah. Apple, iTunes or whatever these things, uh, there's a limit on how much you can make. But the thing to do now is to get all kinds of streaming sources. So, you know, unless somebody's exclusively wants to buy your content and they want you to be exclusive with them. Yeah. They have to pay for that. Yeah. Otherwise you can have it on many different platforms. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I mean, I, I can, um, it's, it's, uh, navigating uncharted waters, figuring that out. Yeah. And there are many, many more being created all the time that if you put your content there yeah, and you control the licensing of that content, yeah. Uh, or have an agreement about it, you can make your money. Yeah. You, can get, you can get paid. Yeah, it's just that most distribute most movie makers sell all their rights to distributors, and then the distributors have all kinds of language and ways that you will never get to. F- you. Yeah, yeah, they, they completely. F- Yes, they but do. you're an artist, man. And yeah. Harry, I am so grateful for you being here, man. Hey. I have so much respect for you and so much love, yeah. and only so many great things are in store. I know it, and Thank that's you. so it's such an honor to see you crush it. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you great, for being here, man. You, yeah, great, great conversation. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah. If you like the show, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Thank you for listening.